All right then, let's get started. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 15. Uh, We are continuing today in a series we started now three weeks ago called Knowing Jesus, How to Hear, See, and Be More Like Him. And so for some of you who are new with us here this morning or even watching online, just a a little bit of a heads up, catch up, knowing Jesus. Of course, that's got to be a a goal of every Christian or even a person who's uh, looking to follow Jesus or discover who he is. So knowing him, not just about him, but actually knowing him personally, uh, that's an important deal. That's a legit thing that we would want to be doing. But the reason why we're doing it is because we have been moving through various series over the last eight weeks, and we felt as uh, pastors, as leaders in the church, that this would be a good thing for us to do right now after having done a Knowing God series, and then having done a series in identity or about identity. And so the whole idea was this. We need to know God, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We need to know Him. But to know Him, we actually also need to know ourselves. It's kind of a, a weird paradigm or paradox in the sense that You can't, none of us can fully know God until we fully know ourselves as, listen, he sees us truthfully and honestly, and he sees us in two ways, which I'll mention. And then out of that, then we now know God better because of how he knows us, etc. So how does he know us in two ways? First way, he knows us. He knows the truth about us. He knows our old self, born out of our old nature, which is sinful. And and what we learned in these series is this, despite that, despite the fact that God can look at you and can look at me and he can see us for honestly who we are and how we've been far from him, rebelled against him, not loved him, not loved our neighbor as we should, he still pursues us and loves us. Man, if all of us could be just like our heavenly father, amen, all the time, but that's what he does. That's exactly what he does. And then in that, what he desires, what he desires more than anything else to do with you and for you is to lead you, transform you into your true self, the self that your heavenly father has already, before you were knitted in your mother's womb, has for you, a true self that is in Christ perfect. So what's the other way that he sees you? Well, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, he sees you as he sees his son. You're a saint in Christ. He sees you perfectly as your true self, even though from time to time, most of us don't see ourselves that way, right? And so that's the purpose of the series. The purpose of this series is that we want to understand this phase of the Christian life from the point that we're saved from the penalty of sin. Amen? It's done. We're saved. But then there's this being saved from the power of sin over us in this life today called our sanctification or our progressive transformation in the Christian life. So how do we do that? Honestly, how do we do that? That's the point. And, and the point of knowing Jesus is that we look to him. <laughs> He's the perfect reflection of God. Hebrews 1 tells us that. He is the perfect image of God expressed to us. And so we look to him. Not just about him, hear nice stories about him, learn some facts about him, but we come into communion with him as a person and we see him so That's why we're doing this series. And what I've been asking you all to do is an interesting process that I did a lot on my sabbatical uh, during three months. And I have to be honest with you, it's it's not easy for me either as your pastor, as a Christian for what, 40 years, I think, 
is to, to do what I'm asking you to practice, which is to calm down, slow down, eliminate the distractions, and look at him. Look at him. Hear him. Just do that. So like we did last week, I'm going to ask you to uh, follow along with me on probably one of the most famous parables you've ever heard uh, Jesus preach and teach. And we've been through this parable before, so some of you are going, Glenn, this must have been simple. You had notes. Well, true, but God also put some new thoughts on my heart by re-looking at this because I'm looking at him. So like we did last week, I'm going to open up the reading uh, beginning in verse 11 of Luke 15. Um, You know this parable. You've heard it preached by more gifted preachers many times before. Amen. Awesome. Can I ask you to do this this morning as I read the words? Just meditate. Just don't, don't look for the meanings that you've already heard or what, you're, you know, what this might be as, as a preacher, for example. Like, what are the three points here? How am I going to preach this? What's the lesson? What's the application? There are things like that here. But in the reading of it, could I ask you to do this? Just imagine looking at him. Like we did last week where we looked at him and, and he's in this boat. And there's this crowd on, on the shore. And he tells them, a sower sowed some seeds. And there's like a thousand of them there. And he's sitting down in this boat and he's just telling them this parable. And they're listening to him. thought I had this morning as I was meditating over these notes before I read it is this. The scripture tells us that there was nothing about his look that was particularly attractive. In other words, he wasn't a super dude, handsome guy. Apparently. There was nothing overtly attractive about him in the physical sense. But the truth is, he was magnetic. Absolutely magnetic. He drew people to him. And and not just because of the wisdom that was coming out of his mouth, but there was something about him when people looked and they listened. So can I encourage you to do that as I read the full parable this morning, beginning in verse 11 of Luke 15. And he, Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be or to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, your son, comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he is found. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Father, we know this story is about you. We know this is about you. And your only begotten son is telling them and us in their presence and in ours about you. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for being our perfect Heavenly Father. Father, I thank you for how Jesus reveals you here. I thank you for how he reveals your heart and how in that he reveals himself. And so what I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, you would really speak to our hearts today. You would encourage us about you. Yes, about earthly fathers who, who we love and who have modeled some of these things well. Oh, but Lord, we know we, we all fall short of that. So we want to celebrate you today, Father, above all. And in that, Lord, we want to thank you for fatherhood and what it means. Lord, I just pray you'd bless our time now. Holy Spirit, guide us and teach us, I pray. Amen. So, I just have a sermon title for you this morning. No three, four, five, six, seven points. You're pretty grateful for that, right? sermon title is, The Parable of the Loving Father. I'm sure you've heard other titles. Those titles, by the way, that might be in your Bible at the top there, those were added later. They're not in the original documents. So that means I'm entitled to change the title if it so fits the occasion. And I'm not doing that because it's Father's Day. 
In fact, this, this parable was third in line uh, that I would be preaching in this series, and it was specifically this parable that I thought of, and I didn't even know at the time that I put it into the schedule that it was going to fall on June 20th, and that would be Father's Day, because honestly speaking, I thought Father's Day was last week. It seems like late in the year for Father's Day, doesn't it? Okay, enough commentary? Enough commentary. Okay, so before we dive in and tackle this parable, which we're going to do, which we do verse by verse usually, although we'll be looking at sections of this today, we've got to look at the context. We've got to figure out, okay, what's going on here? What's happening at this very moment when Jesus is telling this parable to the guys? Because it'll help us a little bit with our understanding of the actual parable. Actually, if you look back to verses 1 and 2, and we'll have this on screen, we see these words written by Luke. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, <laughs> I love the way he does that, were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Two groups. Very divergent groups. Both are attracted to him because, yes, he's magnetic, but in some cases, some are attracted to him because the magnet is pulling them to him. And in others, it's what? It's like the poles are reversed, being pushed away. So this is the introduction, actually, in verses 1 and 2 to three parables that Jesus will teach in a row. It's very interesting that they're all about, well, the first one was about lost sheep, and the second one was about lost coins, both of which were found. There's a recurring theme here, and then after they're found, there's great rejoicing. So again, this is like lining things up. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you look at the ministry of his preaching and teaching, it's like... Every preacher on the planet, teacher on the planet, would be like, could I please be like Jesus? Because <laughs> he's so consistent, and, and, and there's a pattern to what he teaches. And the reason why he teaches these patterns and does it in this way is because he wants us all to hear. And I want to make this point right now, and that is, is that oftentimes the good old Pharisees and scribes are what? Thrown under the bus. Those are the bad guys. Jesus is just trying to show them up. Jesus just wants them to go away. Ab- absolutely not true. It would appear that in every parable, including this one today, he's saying in their presence, guys, you're lost too. Just as lost as the tax collectors and sinners who eat with me. Can you not see that? And so he doesn't give up on anybody. It's like what we saw last week with the sower and the seeds. He sows his seeds indiscriminately. He wants everyone to hear the gospel and to believe and to trust him. So as I've said often, it's uh, seen that he's against them. Oh, he's critical for sure. And he will be in this parable today. He is. They're going to get that. But he's trying to reach them. And that, that might be a little bit of an evangelistic lesson to you. It might be a, I won't get into it too deeply, but there might be different ways to approach different people groups, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. And so like I said, this is often called the par- parable the parable of the prodigal son, right? And, and it, it's a good title. Listen, it's a good title. I've actually preached on that title before. I, I've repented of that. I won't do that again. Because here's the thing. That title tends to put it up this way. It's, it's, it's a story about the antics of this uh, wayward son, the younger son. And it's natural if you think about it. We, we all want to hear sermons that are essentially at some point about us. About, about how God so loved us that he goes out and he's searching for us and, and he comes, to, and it's true, he does do that, but you know, that he comes and he rescues us and then we're this great, you know, this great testimony story of what God has done and, and it's great. It is. 
I mean, I, I actually was thinking about it this weekend, thinking, you know, The Chosen, anyone seen the series called The Chosen? It's, it's really well done. It's probably the best uh, uh, um, Christian TV series movie I've ever seen. It's one, I think it's the first one that I've ever seen as a series where I haven't cringed yet, <laughs> where I haven't watched an episode or whatever and went, oh, that's just, that's so corny. That's not, no, or it's not biblical, right? No, it's been really, really good. So I've actually been thinking, I would love to see them do an episode on this parable. It would be awesome. They would do a really good job. I'm sure if they did it, however, uh, under the title of the prodigal son, there would be like a lot of really wonderful orchestral music at the end, right? Here's what happens, right? So anyway, the reason why I've changed the title, because I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind at all. Honestly, it's a good side thought. It is. It's okay, but that's not what he has in mind. This is not intended to be actually heartwarming. In fact, as we will see at every change of scene and plot twist, those listening to Jesus would be, if if you were there, if you could have seen their reaction, they would have been getting angrier and angrier. I'm talking about the the Pharisees and the scribes, obviously. But even his, the tax collectors and the sinners, those who were like really attracted with them to him because he did want to eat with them and he did love them and they knew it, they would still be having some questions too because they'd be seeing the, the angst going on here. And they'd be confused too, because tax collectors, most, for the most part, were Jewish people too. So they'd be going, this is a strange parable. So this is the last of the parables in, in this series, and Jesus is going to give them and us his mo- most poignant letter, uh, uh, pardon me, lesson on who we truly are. And that's, again, what we were looking at in the identity series. And, and it's who we truly are before a holy a righteous and, yes, merciful and loving God. In this incredible parable, he wants us to see this. In this story, in life, really, there are essentially two groups of people caught in two kinds of lostness. And the good news is there's one way home for both groups. That's the good news. Keep it simple. There's one way home. So in this story, the tax collectors and sinners obviously are being played by the younger son. They have committed what the other group clearly believes are grievous sins, so grievous, there's really no way back. Like, you're a lost cause. You, you've sinned, you've done that, and you've done that on and on and on. Very little chance that God is going to be forgiving of you compared to us. Because look at us, we're so holy and righteous, we've been perfect, always obeying God, doing everything he's ever commanded us to do, you know, tithing, blah, blah, blah. That's the two groups. And of course, the Pharisees and the scribes are being played by, as we will get to near the end, the elder son in the story. So, and so that's the reason behind, honestly, uh, I've titled this parable today, and it's not because it's Father's Day, but it's because the key character in this story is the father. He's the key. So let's look at the parable, beginning in verse 12. Put it on screen. And the younger of them said... To his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. (laughs) When you were a child, did you ever demand something from your father like that? I, you know, this, you know, what this is here? It's called the backhand. That's what I would have gotten. Okay, my dad was very loving, but and he divided his property between them. All that's said at this point. So right from the very start, again, context-wise, and I think most of you already know this, 
Uh, some of you may not, and so it's important to, to highlight it. Uh, in the hearing, the Pharisees and the scribes would be like, their minds would be exploding at this point. <laughs> and, and even the tax collectors and the sinners who know even a little bit about Yahweh God would be like, okay, okay. Context is important. In, in every Jewish family, the rule of thumb was basically this. The father's wealth and his estate was based in his property and his livestock. It wasn't like he had RRSPs or, you know, like an inheritance that he would be leaving to his kids other than his land, his property, and his livestock. That's where his wealth was. Now, the other rule of thumb was this, is that upon his death, the inheritance would be divided between his family members, but the largest portion of his inheritance would go to whom? The elder son. And so we have in this case something that the listeners in that time would have found a bit odd, but the Pharisees and the scribes, they would would have been like, okay, this is just wrong. (laughs) This is not the way it's done. What are you talking about? Now, they were already skeptical of Jesus. They were already like, this guy cannot be the Messiah. This is not right. It's not possible. He's not like taking down the Romans and putting us in charge and, and, you know, so first, the younger son, listen, he demands his inheritance now. Do you see that? He demands it now. Dad, give me what I want right now. And so it was unheard of. And there would have been a standard answer to that. There would have been a standard answer to that in that culture, in that way, in a Jewish family. And it would have been twofold. No and get out. The level of disrespect, which was not tolerated in Jewish families, would have required the father to say no and get out. And, and, and other fathers who would get together in the marketplace and tell the story of my son actually did this and I told him to get out, the rest would be patting him on the back. I'm not trying to mock at all, but that's just true. That was the cultural mindset in that day. That would have been the end of their relationship as well. You see it in the words of Jesus. He was dead to me. Now, there's another version of that dead, which we'll get to, but that is actually how the father felt or would have. In their minds, it would have been like saying, Father, I wish, in fact, you were dead because I want your money now. That's, again, how the perception was. And listen, this was, this was just appropriate protocol. This is how you disciplined your children. This is how it was lived out. It worked for centuries. And so, again, I'm not trying to downplay their feelings or their culture, but Jesus is essentially, I think, trying to teach them in this parable that they're wrong, right? That that's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of a father, or at least it shouldn't be. Secondly, and this would have completely blown the lid off their anger, the father did what? (laughs) Okay, Jesus, you're telling us a parable about a father who did what? He just gave him? The inheritance? Actually, if you look at the words, it's important because it says he divided it between them. So the division of the property actually happened at that time. The youngest son got his share, the eldest son got his, but it says divided. Now, we don't know what the percentages were, so we just have to leave it there, but it's being between them. So I want to apply that right now to us dads here today, or those of you who are watching online, 
in a couple of important ways. I'm very proud of several members of our church family who have signed up for a digital seminar course online called Posture Shift. It's intended to help us as a church in this day and age to have a better heart and understanding towards those people who are in the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, we, we agree as a church, we have agreed as a church, we could use some help understanding that and, and how we respond and how we love everyone just like Jesus loved everyone. Well, in the study of all this, I read a book in the last three weeks by a man by the name of Beckett Cook. I would strongly recommend this to you. It's a book called Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. In that book, under the chapter called Parents, oh, pardon me, Pastors, Parents, and Friends, and the subtitle, What Not to Do, he shares a couple of really poignant and important points for pastors and parents and friends of those who are, quote, coming out. And he shares some stories, particularly of one young woman who came out to her parents, and how that went down. didn't go down well. A lot of really hard words were said. Hurt was said. Get out was said. And so Beckett wants to make it very clear to all of us that there's a better way. And he describes that in the next subtitled chapter. It made me think about it when I was reading this, which it really broke my heart to hear that. But I also want to give you some examples here. I remember 20, 30 years ago, hearing a well-known, popular pastor in an audio that I was listening to. I won't mention his name. But he was literally answering the question to his congregation about what you should do if your children come out to you. Do you know what he said? Tell them to leave. Basically shunning, right? I mean, I actually heard that. And I, I remember thinking at the time, and, and this was new stuff, and, and I'm thinking, no, that, that, that can't be right. That's not helpful. That's very hurtful. But, but I also want to share with you this. There are many other ways that can go down, guys. Many other ways that can go down. I, I, I know friends and, and people we, who've gone through different, different difficulties with their teenage children. Anybody? Hello? Amen? Hello? Anybody? Okay. One day, one day some of you will have to deal with this, right? Uh, I can't wait to watch it. Because um, your angels are going to grow up and be these. And, and, but there are so many different ways this can go down. I remember one situation where, and listen, moms, moms, hang on a second here. You need to hear this. You can also do this. It's possible for a, a Christian parent a father who might be even encouraged by the mother or together as a couple to say to their son who's dating an unbelieving girl, you stop that or get out of our home. I mean, you're 30, you should be moving out anyway. <laughs> it happens. It happens. And I, I confess, it has happened. <laughs> Stuff like that has happened. I've always said to people, you know, in my case, I, I, never, got the, I never got to go to the class Fatherhood 101. Like, I, you know, it took about 15, 20 years of reading the scripture to go, oh, that's how you, t you treat your children. 
So let me quote and put on screen for you, Fathers, Ephesians 6.4, where the Apostle Paul says, after he says, children, obey your parents. I like that part a lot. But then he says these words, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so I love what Beckett Cook said in his book, under what not to do, but under better, under a better way. He said this, and it's radical if you think about it, because he actually quoted this parable. He pointed to this parable, and he said these words as a better way. He said, look at the father in the parable. And he said this, he didn't fly into a violent rage. He didn't punish his son. He didn't ground him. Honey, we've had a few groundings, haven't we? He didn't take away his iPhone. He didn't admonish him by quoting Bible verses at him every night at the dinner table. He didn't try to stop him at all. He simply let him go. That's hard. But Beckett is saying specifically in relation to that particular issue, that's a better way. I would agree with him. So as we know, the younger son packs up his bags and leaves. And so here's the point. You also have to see this. The father humbly lets him go. And what does the son do? Even though the father knows what's going to happen, he walks right in to sin. He goes and lives a life of debauchery in sin. That's why it's described to us, right? He heads into downtown Vancouver from the Bible Belt in Abbotsford. Wine, women, song, drugs, you, may, you name it. That's what he does. Okay, this is a modern version of it, but that's essentially what he does. We read in the text that he squandered his property in reckless living. So he's completely irresponsible. He gets the inheritance. He doesn't care. If I spend it all by the time I'm 26, 27, 28, then I'll go home and I'll play video games in the basement. It's actually not a joke. <laughs> His life ends up becoming a train wreck. Things go from bad to worse. There's a famine. He, 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 you know, it, it, really, it really gets terrible. He's not only broke, but he's starving. Now he tries to save himself by getting a job. Good idea. To buy the things that he needs. But here's what else you need to see. This does happen as well. His friends in the world where he's at don't help him. When he's down and out and he's at his worst, especially when he's been taking and taking and spending and spending and living in even a way that some of his friends don't agree with, they're not there for him. They wouldn't even share the food fed to the pigs with him in this story. So now I just want us to imagine at this point in the story that as the elder son types are thinking, most of them would be thinking, yeah, you know what? Darn right. He deserves it. He deserves to have his life end up that way. People feel that way sometimes today about those whose lives have been broken. I, some of you know this. I spent three and a half years in full-time ministry at Union Gospel Mission, downtown each side, drug and alcohol recovery, saw a lot of broken, broken, broken lives. I went to churches sometimes and, and, and spoke on behalf of the mission and so forth. And I'd have a little booth at the back and people would come back, you know, because we're trying to raise money to feed the homeless. And a lot of people would be like, yeah, we, we totally agree. It would be good to, you know, give them the gospel and, and to feed them. But there was not a lot, but there's there always a few people who were like, 
It's their own fault, you know. Oh. Verse 17 says this, and I love this because this is where hope begins. But when he came to himself, that's good. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? So he comes to his senses. This is a really good step. If you've ever worked with anyone who's been through addictions of any kind, there comes a point, you hit bottom, and it's like, I need help. I really need help. He comes to his senses. It's a great first step. So before your life becomes a complete train wreck, if that's where you might be at today, I don't know. I don't know who's watching, who's listening. Come to your senses. Ask for help. So here's interesting. This younger son, he devises a plan. He, he actually devises an apology. Look what he says in verse 19. He, this is his rehearsing of it, by the way. He rehearses it and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So it, this is great. Like he's like, okay, I know I'm going to have to confess to my father. Uh, at best, you know, he might give me a job so that I can work on the farm and I get paid like, you know, like one of his servants. But it's, it's, he's not quite there yet when it comes to repentance. Because there's a little bit of like works-based religion going on here. He's thinking that I'll make some money. I'll be able to look after myself, maybe. Still not thinking that I, I want a relationship with my father, but maybe I can just look after myself better now. Or maybe he's thinking, this would be hopeful. Maybe he's thinking, you know what? My father's going to expect me to repay. So maybe I can make, make enough money to repay. But there's a works thing going on here, right? In his mind. And so he's rehearsed his pitch. And then we read beautifully in verse 20. So he's on his way home. He's, revert, he's rehearsed it. It's awesome. And then we read, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Okay. Pretend you're a scribe or a Pharisee just for a second here, please. Just step back and go, are you completely serious? You're a father, a patriarch in the, the Jewish faith. We don't do those kind of things. <laughs> you don't lift up your garment and run. It's, 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 it's unmanly. You don't embrace a sinner like this. You don't kiss him. Oh, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. So here's the point. Jesus is making and wants them to see. He wants them to see this, guys. He wants us to see it, and it is this. Moralistic, self-righteous, religious people, people like the elder sons are put off by Jesus and his forgiveness and his grace. They don't want it, actually. They want to be able to earn it. They want to have something to do with it. It's sad, actually. On the other hand, those who are deemed the socially immoral and obviously sinful are really attracted to Jesus. They're listening to this story and they're going, there is hope for me. There's such hope for me. Now look at the response of the younger son to what the father just did. It's interesting. He's rehearsed it, right? 
He says this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Did you see it? He dropped something. He dropped the whole idea about getting the job. He's received his father's forgiveness. He's probably a little shock and awe. He's experienced grace that he knows he doesn't deserve. It's such an incredible picture. He's actually shocked in the opposite way that the moralistic elder brother types would see it. His, His heart has been totally softened. And he receives it. And he walks into it. It's totally beautiful. But again, the elder brother types are probably thinking, wait a second. The least he could do before you do that for him is take a shower. You know, clean yourself up a little bit. Again, we don't hear and see these things in the text, I understand, but we, we, we understand the hearts of men and women, right? It's like, I don't get this. Why would you be so full of grace and love towards this unrepentant sinner? In their minds, anyway. So finally, the father orders the servants to go get the family's prized fatted calf, the most expensive animal on their property that they have, kill it and start up the barbecue. Let's have the grandest celebration of all time. The village is invited. And his reason for doing that is, he says in verse 24, for this, my son, look at these words, was dead. I said earlier, was dead to me? Maybe. No, what he meant was, Spiritually dead. Separated from the family of God. And now, he's alive again. He was lost. He is found. And they began to celebrate. You guys all know the Bible verse? When one sinner repents, there's joy where? In the heavenlies. When this happens. And that's what we're seeing in this picture. It's a wonderful story so far if you identify with the younger son, right? It's awesome. We all want to identify with the younger son. I understand that. Me too. Well, next we learn that the elder son is doing what elder sons do. He's doing his work. He's looking after the father's farm, his property. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Exactly what he's supposed to do. And all of a sudden he hears this commotion and he goes to one of the other staff and servants and he says, what in the world is going on? Servant says to him in verse 27, your brother, hear those words, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Well, we know from the story, this completely enrages the elder son, which all of the elder son types, the Pharisees and scribes who were listening would identify with. They would be like, finally, finally someone in the family who knows what's really going on here. They, they hear this guy's response and even his response to his father and they're like, this is what needs to happen here. If there's really going to be a healing in this family, we need to hear this. The father pleads with him. You heard the word entreats him. It, it's, it, the Greek word would be like pleading with him, begging with son, come in. It's a party. Your brother's home. After all this time, he's come back. 
The elder son responds in verse 29, look, it's a terrible word. These many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your commands. Do you think that's maybe a little stretch? Yet you never gave a young goat to me that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. So again, the younger son was disrespectful to the father by asking the father to give me my inheritance now. Come on. Even the legalistic Pharisees in that day must have thought, Talking to your father with words like, look, you, that wasn't very respectful. It was incredibly disrespectful. And then here it is, of course, as I've just emphasized in the reading of it, the elder son type self-justification takes place. I served you. Look at me. Why are you looking at him? Why are you doing this for him? I served you. I never disobeyed you. As I said, probably a stretch. And despite all my good behavior, doing all the right things all these years, nothing from you, nothing from you, no acknowledgement of my righteous superiority over him. So it's not just the disrespect of the father that's on display here. It's the son's sense of moral superiority over, listen, not just the younger son, but even his father. He's morally superior to even his own father. It also reveals one of the most important truths from this parable, and it is this. Both the younger son and the elder son are guilty of many things, but most notably, they are guilty of wanting what the father has, his possessions and his wealth, but not him. Not really him. Well, then we read, the father said to the elder son, Son... You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. He divided the property, remember? It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he is found. I want to highlight this for you today, and I want you to please hear me well, because it's really important. Jesus uses the word Father to describe his heavenly Father over 165 times in the Gospels. And many of those occasions are right here in this parable. And I understand. That's a very challenging distinction and word in our culture today for some of us, men and women, when our relationships with our earthly fathers have not gone well. And that can be probably even, no, it is more traumatic for young women, for women. No question. But I've shared with you many times uh, in the past that, you know, my, I know my father loved me, but my father was a fu- functional alcoholic. And so there was, there, there was a lot of wounds there. There was a lot of self-doubt. And one, at one minute, you know, my dad was like, you're the greatest. You're going to make the NHL. You're awesome. And the next minute, you will never amount to anything when he was drunk. It hurt. It still hurts. So earthly fathers create a really big problem when we view our Heavenly Father. And so here's a really important and difficult word. But what we're seeing here in this parable is our Heavenly Father as our good, better, no, perfect patriarch. There's a word for you. 
It's a really popular and lovely word in this culture today, but let me speak to men directly here today if you're watching online and in this room. The reason why it is referred to today as the evil patriarchy is not because of our Heavenly Father. It's on us. Not modeling this father model. The loving father in this parable is our Heavenly Father. He is merciful and forgiving and entreating to both the immoral and the moralistic. That's the truth. So, two key observations as we conclude. Question. In a functional and loving family, shouldn't the elder brother have gone looking for his younger brother? I mean, hey, I know some, I know most of you in this room, not all of you, I know many of you are watching online. I know you would. I, I know when I was at Union Gospel Mission, many times when we would be at the front desk or whatever, we would have people coming in, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, going, have you seen this person? Searching for this person. Not just moms and dads, brothers and sisters, friends. Searching for this lost person. This moralistic elder brother, however, he didn't do that. Secondly, shouldn't he at least have been super excited when his brother was found and came home more or less in one piece? Well, he didn't. So in this story and in real life, he represents every elder son type who's less than happy when a real sinner is forgiven their sins and welcomed home into the family of God. Guys, that's a struggle for some of us. That's a struggle for some people. Especially when, when we've been Christians for a while and we feel like we've done well and, and, and we don't feel like we're getting blessed the way that we should. And then, now this person <laughs> he comes to faith in Jesus after all that and, wow, things are really going well for them. Sometimes that's hard to accept. So also, it feels like a bit of a cliffhanger at the end, doesn't it? I did take this from my notes last time I preached this, but it does. The story ends, and you're like, what really happens to the other elder brother? You know, we could be hopeful, but we don't know. We don't actually know. We're not told. But Jesus does hope the elder brother types hearing the story will get the message, Right? That's the only reason why he told it this way. Not to condemn, but to get to their hearts. So I secondly, I believe this. The most beautiful underlying meaning to this story, besides the fact that the title should be the parable of the loving father, is this. I don't know if you can see it or you've seen it, but there's another brother in the story, isn't there? There's the father, there's the two sons, And there's Jesus Christ. He is our better elder brother. They don't know this yet in this story. Because they have not yelled out, crucify him, crucify him yet. He has not been dead and buried and risen on the third day yet. And so the whole story of redemption and and their salvation hasn't been told yet. And so they don't know it yet. They don't know that he's the better elder brother. But he's planting some seeds here. And so he's shown them what they look like. They're stuck in their self-righteous, moralistic mindset, absolutely alienated from the grace and graceful heart of the Father. But Jesus is not. He is the true elder brother. 
And so unlike the elder brothers in this story and in our world today, Jesus came to earth and truly obeyed the Father in every way, didn't he? He did. He never disobeyed his orders. He truly also had the right to all that the Father owns. You and I don't have that right, do we? Well, except in Christ. Because in Christ, all of us have been given his robe, his ring, his place, his inheritance, and listen, all at Christ's expense. We deserve none of this, younger or elder brothers, but we can receive it today. I hope you will receive this today, and I hope in the reading of this word today and in this message today, this will help lead to your transformation, Christian, in your walk, in your faith, in your hearing, and your seeing of Jesus Christ. Pray with me, would you?